So this morning we're going to actually begin our uh, study of Galatians. And really, we don't need a detailed introduction to the study of Galatians because that's what the Acts study has been leading up to this point. It is the introduction to our letter to the Galatians because Paul is writing to the churches he established in his first missionary journey, which we just looked at in the book of Acts. And you may remember, I told you when we were going through that, in chapter 14, I asked you to put a circle around a particular verse because I said, this is going to be really important when it comes to Paul's letter to the Galatians. You remember that? So we're going to go back to that verse. If you would go to Acts chapter 14, and I want you to look at verse, we'll start in 21. Acts chapter 14, verse 21. I said then, and I'll remind you, this is an important verse as it relates to Paul's letter to the Galatians. So just to remind you, he's accomplished his first missionary journey, and now he's circling back around to all the churches that have been established through that ministry of he and and Barnabas. And so as he does so, this is what happens in verse 21. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Here's what happened. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So as Paul and Barnabas revisited all these churches that had been established during this first missionary journey, we know appointing elders in each of those churches in every city along the way, they remained with them long enough, I don't know how long it was, but long enough, it says, to strengthen their soul. They did it in two specific ways. It says, number one, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and then number two, to maintain that faith in the midst of tribulation. We can understand how Paul would write those words after how he and Barnabas experienced tribulation pretty much every turn uh, they took. He knew that they would need to stand strong in their faith in the face of opposition because he and, and Barnabas were essentially run out of most every town that they went to share the gospel. But as we know, every time they were run out of one town and going to the next, they took the message of the gospel with them. It was a persecution, as we learned, that was fueled primarily, primarily by the jealousy of the Jews. It was fueled by a jealousy that just could not understand how the Gentiles could be fellow partakers of God's chosen people after such a long history of the Israelites. We know that this continued to be an obstacle even as they returned to Antioch, their home church who first sent them out. Because by the time they get back, that church had been infiltrated by Jewish believers from Jerusalem who were trying to convince all the new Christians that they had to become Jewish in order to be a true Christian. So if Paul has considered and has experienced all, these, uh, all this opposition along the way, I think he is writing to Galatians back in chapter 14 or when he's telling the Galatians, he's knowing what's coming. He's preparing them for what's ahead. If this is what has been his experience, why would it be any different for them, right? So in verse 22, and Paul is urging the Galatian Christians to be uncompromising in their faith. 
He wants them to stand firm in the hope of salvation through faith in Christ alone. Because it was by grace they've been saved, through faith. And that not of themselves, it was a gift from God, not as a result of works. And he won't even end there as he continues writing in his letters. Not as a result of works, not as a result of race, not as a result of, of gender, not as a result of ethnicity, the, the, not as a result of any of these requirements. But it is faith alone in Christ alone. You see, he's writing because he wants those who have been saved by grace to continue to grow in grace. He wants them to stand firm in this hope of the gospel. These were Paul's final words to the church in Galatia. This is what he left them this with. He wanted them to, to live in this place. And knowing that those are his final words, it'll give us an appreciation for some of the emotion that we will begin to see even in the first chapter of the letter to the Galatians this morning. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know that you have consistently proclaimed that the grace that has saved us is that which continues to set us free. And yet we so often find ourselves in places of bondage, bondage to the opinions of other people, bondage to trying to achieve our own worth and success for value and purpose. And so, Lord, we need to be liberated. We need to be set free. I don't know that we're all that different than the Galatians. And so as we read this letter to them, may we hear your word spoken to us to reveal those places that we are slaves to things that were never intended to hold us captive. I pray that your truth sets us free this morning as we begin to look at your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you're not already there, turn to Galatians chapter 1 and Begin reading with me in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul begins by saying, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Throughout most of Paul's ministry, you'll find that he consistently was opposed by people who tried to bring his authority into doubt. It was a common tactic of his opponents to, in some ways, disrupt the message that he was preaching by discrediting him as the messenger. So Paul repeatedly explains to the people, he says, look, this was never my idea in the first place, right? I was on a completely different path until the Lord literally interrupted my life. Paul says that he was made an apostle, divinely commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. And the message that he preaches is affirmed by the church and its leadership. That's why he tells us in verse 2 that he speaks not in isolation, but as one voice among all the brethren with him. He tells us that it's a message of, of grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if there's one word that continues to resonate throughout Paul's letter to the Galatians, it's grace. You're going to see it in one form or another from beginning to end. 
grace. That word grace actually comes from a Hebrew word, hesed. We've talked about that word before. It's my favorite word in the Old Testament. It's a fun word to say. You kind of have to clear your throat a little bit. Hesed, okay? That word is a word that means God's loyal love. And I want you to listen to how God himself gives explanation to that very important word. He says in Exodus chapter 34, just listen as I read to you beginning in verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. So these, this is God speaking. Listen to what he says as he describes himself. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's how God Himself describes His own character to His people, and He's using that, that Hebrew word hesed. That word that is then transferred into Greek and gives us the word grace. God's loyal love is what makes peace with God even a possibility. He is just and righteous. It tells us that he cannot leave the guilty unpunished. And yet we all know that's a problem. Why? Because we're guilty. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We see God's grace in the sacrifice of his son, which Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatians, who gave himself for our sins. It's a willing sacrifice. It's what we just talked about in, in communion. Where God took an eternity of what we deserve, bound it up in a moment, and unleashed it on His Son so that we might be forgiven, so that we might experience grace, so that we might live in eternity with Him. It's God's loyal love that brings about our highest good. That's what we call grace. See, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That ransom is a rescue. It, it rescues us from the domain of darkness and it transfers us into the kingdom of God. Jesus brings peace by restoring that life-giving relationship that every human being was created for. And all of this, it says in verse 4, is according to the will of our God and Father. God's loyal love is what brings about our highest good. That's what we call grace. Which means that we have faith in the conviction that whatever we think is best for us, that God's will is infinitely better. That no matter what we think is best for us, God's will for us is infinitely better. To the point it says that all eternity will be filled with praise for all that He has done and all that He is still doing even then. That's why in verse 5 it says, To whom be the glory forevermore. It's saying that not even eternity is enough time to fulfill all the praise and glory and honor due to the Lord because just as we finish giving praise for one thing, He's still doing another. 
So as you can see, Paul begins this letter just almost exploding with joy. He cannot contain himself as he thinks about the glory of this gospel of grace. But it also explains why he has such emotion and is so troubled by what is now taking place in the Galatian church. Especially given the last words he spoke to them before he returned to Antioch. They're abandoning this incredible, indescribable treasure for a cheap imitation that's not anything like what he shared with them to begin with. Look at how he continues in verse 6. It says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which really is not another, only there are some who are disturbing you, who distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preached to you in the beginning, let him be accursed. We see this turn of emotion. He goes from, being, from exploding with joy to being amazed, to being astonished, to being bewildered, to being confused. He cannot fathom how they could so quickly turn and abandon the message of truth that was proclaimed to them for a different gospel. Deserting this gospel of grace and extorting a distortion of the good news. That word desert is a military term. It's intended to give you this picture of a traitor. Someone who leaves his own people to go work for the enemy. That's essentially what Paul sees is happening within the Galatian church. In order for them to, to believe this lie, they have to first reject the truth. And Paul sees how these new believers that he has led to Christ are now falling away and he's trying to stop them. He's saying, how can you so quickly reject what you so willingly embraced? When I thought about this and considered just this sudden turn of events that is completely different than what they had experienced, I couldn't help but think of the Old Testament experience of the golden calf. Now, one of the things that you may not remember about that count is before the golden calf ever came into being, we learn in Scripture that God actually reveals himself. He reveals himself to Moses, to Aaron, and to the Israel elders. So it was a fairly large group of men. It says that God reveals himself to the point that it's described as his feet, as, as if they were sitting on a pavement of sapphire. What that means is they began to get a glimpse of the glory of God that is beyond explanation. Has anyone in this room ever seen a pavement of sapphire? No, and neither did they, but it was the best they could come up with to describe the glory of God being revealed in their very presence. It, it goes on to say that not only did they experience the glory of God, that they actually ate and drank in His presence. Just imagine what an amazing experience this must have been for Moses, for Aaron, and for all the elders of Israel. And it was at this point, after having had this encounter that God then calls Moses up to the mountain. And it was during this encounter that he would give Moses what we know to be the Ten Commandments. But while Moses was gone, the very same people who had witnessed 
the glory of God. Aaron and the elders of Israel, they led the people of Israel into idolatry. By taking the jewelry that the Israelites had, the the gold jewelry, melting it down and then fashioning it into a golden calf. A crudely constructed idol. Having just witnessed the unspeakable glory of God. Does that make any sense to you at all? And yet the Galatian church is repeating the very same error. They are abandoning the beauty of God's grace for a cheap imitation. A gospel that is fabricated on worldly wisdom and the opinions of people and and human efforts, which Paul says really is no gospel at all. There's no good news in what we do to accomplish our righteousness on our behalf. The Galatians were being drawn away by a distortion of the good news. A gospel where, yeah, Jesus is Savior, but we are responsible for earning our acceptance. That we are consistently and continually obligated to prove our worth In his presence. But this is not the gospel preached by Paul. This is a a new teaching that is increasingly being accepted within the Galatian church. The gospel of grace is falling out of favor because it's hard for people to accept. I want you to think about this for a minute because I think it's easy to, to. be critical of these Galatians and to find themselves falling into this place and not stop and realize how easy it is for us to do the very same thing. Because if we really stop and think about the gospel of grace, I don't know that we really appreciate the magnitude of what it's saying. See, the gospel of grace is saying that God looked upon Jesus as if he had lived our life. Okay? A life full of selfishness, and sin, so that he could look at us as if we had lived the life of Christ, full of righteousness and truth. I want you to think about the fact that your life in Christ actually allows you, in the eyes of God, to be as one who has met all his expectations and fulfilled all of his demands. That's what the gospel of grace is proclaiming. Now, knowing your heart, knowing my heart and how prone we are to wander, isn't that a little bit unsettling? Doesn't it kind of feel like there should be more, that that maybe I should be doing something to kind of fill in the gap a little bit? Surely it can't be that easy that he gave his life and, and that's sufficient and I don't have to add anything to it. That he actually sees me? A sinner? as having fulfilled all of his expectations, having met all of his demands? Me? Has he seen my life? And this is where the Galatian false teachers step in and say, yeah, you're probably right. Instead of accepting God's love, they provide a solution for proving their worth. 
Instead of trusting in the sacrifice of Christ, they create a checklist for obtaining righteousness before God. Paul is saying, look, here's the deal. If anyone ever comes to you with a gospel different than the one that I preach to you, a gospel different than the one that says that, that complete forgiveness and unconditional acceptance is found through faith in Christ alone. If anyone ever does that, whether it's me or an angel from heaven, let them be accursed. That word accursed is really the strongest condemnation that is humanly possible. It's someone who is eternally condemned as a judgment of God. A judgment from which no one can escape. Paul is saying, if you add anything to the gospel, it is no longer good news. It is no gospel at all. And not only that, you are guilty of divine treason upon which there is a judgment of condemnation in hell. That's why I say it doesn't get any stronger, more forceful than those words. Look at how he continues in verse 9. As we have said before, I'll say it again. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? For if I'm striving to please men, if I were still try, striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Here Paul moves from these potential scenarios to an actual judgment upon people. He shifts his attention from talking about these hypothetical situations like an angel from heaven or, or his own personal reversal. And he's directly condemning those who are in the Galatian church at that moment. And he's calling on God's eternal judgment upon these false teachers in the Galatian church. And apparently part of the condemnation or the, the criticism of these opponents from Paul is that Paul was too easy on the Gentiles. That he watered down the gospel, trying to get more people to believe. Because really Paul was just more interested in his own public appeal than really adhering to true biblical truth. So Paul says in verse 10, does my condemnation sound like anyone who's trying to gain the approval of men? In fact, if that were the case, he basically says, that's what I used to do. <laughs> that's who I was as a Pharisee. That's when his whole world, his whole world revolved how other people saw him. To the point that he could say that his righteousness was faultless according to the law. If there was anybody who was an expert list checker, it was Paul before he met Christ on the Damascus Road. He says, if, I want, if you want to talk about somebody who was living for the approval of men, it was Paul the Pharisee. But he says, I abandoned that life in order that I might become a bond slave of Christ. Set aside his own pride, his own approval of man in order to serve the purposes of God. I want you to listen to this story. If you want to turn there and look at it with me, you can. It's in Philippians Chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. This is where Paul, in writing to the Philippians, is thinking back to 
some of what he's referring to here in his letter to the Galatians. And he gives them a a more detailed description. The second half of verse 4 says, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, here it is, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Period. As you can see, as Paul begins this letter, he wastes no time making sure they understand he's willing to go to war on this one. This was, there was way too much at stake when it comes to the message of the gospel. And I want you to keep in mind that he's writing to people that he has led to faith in Christ. Okay? You get that. He's writing to the churches in Galatia. He's writing to people who have put their faith in Christ. And so on one hand, I do believe he's concerned about the message of gospel for those who are yet to believe. But I think he's just as concerned about those who have put their faith in Christ and who are at great risk of losing out of their joy in Christ. And with that in mind, I want to think about how this might apply to us. What are some of the ways that we too can forfeit the joy of God's grace? What are some of the ways that we too can forfeit the joy of God's grace? Where do we seek pleasure in something or someone other than God? Here's a good question to ask. Are you more defined? By what others think about you or by what God says about you. As far as your identity, your your worth, your value, your purpose in life, are you more defined by what others think about you or what God says about you? And I'll start. I'll admit how easy it is for me to find my value and worth in the eyes of other people. It's a struggle for me. People I love, people I care about, people like my wife. Trying to find value in her respect and her admiration of me. There's no one in this world whose opinion matters more to me than hers. And so if I don't feel like I'm meeting those expectations, it is crushing to me. I can find my worth in my kids. I can feel real good about their successes, real defeated by their failures. I can find my value and worth in you, my church family. Striving each week to somehow meet your expectations. But that's not freedom. 
That's a prison. But that's what it looks like for me, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's a struggle that I think at some level we all face. So let me ask you, what does it look like for you? Adam, Jerry, where, where do you find your value and worth? Is it in your parents? Is it in your friends? It is, in your, is it in your boss? Is it in your professors at school? Who are the people that you admire that you're constantly trying to please and live up to? Knowing that none of those places ever satisfy our hunger for acceptance. Because by God's design, the only acceptance that satisfies our heart is His. Everything else will leave us feeling empty. Jeremiah describes it in a picture that, that always is helpful for me. He calls it a broken cistern. If you think about that, it's a, a deep well of water that's intended, or deep well that's intended to hold water, but since it's broken, it fills up and then it drains dry. It fills up and then it drains dry. It's an exercise in futility because it promises to satisfy and then it goes empty. See, only when we find our worth in Christ can we be liberated for seeking the approval of other people. Only when we find our worth in Christ can we be liberated from seeking approval in other people. Until our soul is satisfied in Christ alone, our joy will be incomplete. And I think that's one of the primary motivations of Paul's emotion as he writes this letter to the Galatians. He sees that they are at great risk of losing their joy in Christ by seeking to be satisfied in something other than Him. That's why we need to fully embrace the gospel of grace. Even if that means it's a, it's a truth that we cannot fully comprehend. I will admit to you this morning, I cannot get my head around the fact that God would look upon me as if I had fulfilled all His demands and met all of His expectations. And yet it's true. That's the gospel of God's grace. And so whether I can understand it or not doesn't change the fact that it's true. And I need to be one who finds myself more often in a place where I'm allowing His forgiveness to overwhelm my guilt and shame. Allowing His acceptance to be the motivation of my obedience. So that I'm not trying to live up to His expectations, but I'm actually living out of His approval. Do you see the difference there? Because that's huge. As a believer in Jesus Christ, based on the truth of God's promises in His Word, I don't live out of obedience to gain His approval. I live out of His approval, and I can't imagine the beauty and the privilege of being able to obey. That's a liberation found only in the gospel of grace. You see, the less we try to prove ourselves, the more we find giving glory and honor and praise to God in whom it should belong. The fullness of our joy is made complete in Christ. We don't have to prove anything if we really do believe that His sacrifice was sufficient and eternally complete. 
That's the gospel of grace. Let me just say, if we can understand that truth, if we can really embrace that in our own lives, I cannot tell you the radical change that will take place in how we live our life and how we carry out our obedience if that's what we cling to. You see, when the Bible talks about serving God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength, it has in mind that the only way that's possible is if you understand that you are fully approved, fully accepted, and a great pleasure to Him. Then and only then can you live with a radical love that is willing, like Paul, to forsake everything else in order to live in a way that brings glory and honor to Him so that that gospel of grace is being spread throughout the world and is evident everywhere you go. And if that were true, that is how we make the biggest impact in the world around us. And I believe that's why Paul is so adamant. You notice he didn't waste any time. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm thankful for God's grace. How could you ever forsake? So quickly. Right? And the only reason he can do that is because he understands the significant worth and value of what's at stake here. Because if you get it, David, if you get it, it will radically impact the way you live your life for Christ. And if it radically impacts the way we live for Christ, it will radically impact the world in which we live. I pray that it does. We're going to sing a song to end up this morning, and I want you to just take the truths of what this passage has proclaimed. I'm just going to ask you to, to internalize it, to, to try to consider what does that look like for you? Those truths about who you are in Christ really sank deeply into your heart. How would it truly change the way you live? If we weren't trying to seek the approval of all the people around us and we lived out of the approval that we know we have in God, what difference would that make? I think pretty huge. So let's stand and sing together. I don't know if you caught the words of that first slide. Go back to that, Mark, if you don't mind. That he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. I want you to know I'm excited about going on this journey with you through Galatians because I need to hear this gospel of grace as much as you do. And I want to live in the reality of God's approval and acceptance in ways that radically transforms my life for His name's sake. And I'm excited about doing that together because I'm just going to assume for a moment that there's more than just me in this room who would desire the same. But I hope that today, if there's anything that you can grab a hold of, is that truth that we just sang that in Christ he has made a wretch like me his treasure. A wretch like you his treasure. Man, if you could just grab a hold of that, just soak on it all week long, just let it sink deep into your soul, and then I think everything we talk about in Galatians from this point forward will resonate even more deeply. So will you do that?
Let me pray for us and then we're dismissed. Lord, thank you for the time together this morning. Thank you for establishing communion, knowing that we would need to be reminded time and time again about what was accomplished on the cross. Thank you for the letter to the Galatians, a people not all that different from us, who were distracted from the gospel of grace because of a world of lies around them that tries to convince them there must be something more. Lord, help us realize that even though we can't fathom the incredible goodness of what was accomplished on the cross, it doesn't mean it's not true. That we would in fact accept it as true and then live out of that truth. Not seeking to gain your approval, but to live out of your approval in ways that bring praise and glory to your name and bring liberation and freedom in our lives. I pray that that is a truth that we grab a hold of as we walk through this letter together. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.